Good morning again, everyone. It is good to see so many of you here today. It has been a challenging week in a lot of ways, but I do hope that you were able to see God's goodness through this week. You know, this week I was able to grow a little bit in my appreciation for those that can articulate hard things well. Um, I've always struggled with doing that properly. You know, whenever you're doing a something more official, like a message, um, I'm constantly editing it. I'm deleting things, I'm tweaking things here and there, I'm moving things around, I'm trying to make things sound well. Do I insert a joke here so that laughter will wake people back up and then they'll see, what did I miss? And get back re-engaged into the message. You know, you're constantly doing those types of things. And as you are going over harder topics, I can just, I, I just got a strong sense this week uh, of appreciation for those that do it well. And as you read through some of Paul's writings, you know, I think that he does it in wonderful ways. He, he hits some of these hard topics, but they're still difficult to understand, right? Peter tells us that at the end of his second book where he says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as the, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So he tackles some of the hard things and he combats all of these false teachings and these teachers that are coming in and trying to twist scriptures. And even though they might be hard to understand, even though they still might be mysterious to us, it allows us a chance to wrestle with what he writes and then go to the Spirit for some of that illumination and some try to gain in some wisdom in those areas rather than just trusting in our own power. So we're going to be entering in to one of those difficult sections here in Colossians. And it's going to take several weeks that we're going to be going through some things. Today we're only going to be covering three verses. Uh, we're going to still be in Colossians 1, so if you have your Bibles, you can have that ready. Um, and we're going to read verses 15 through 17 this morning. So as you have those, I invite you to stand with me as I read from the Word of God. Beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Father, as we go to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would give us that opportunity to press into you even more. Help us to understand some of these hard things, to articulate them well, to defend your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, so as we dive into some of these sections, Paul is going to start to dive into the person of Christ. 
and kind of explain who he is a little bit. I'm going to break up these sections in terms of different topics that Paul is going to be covering about. So if you, if you look down into uh, verse 19, let me find it here. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, so I'm going to borrow some of that phrasing as we go through these sections and kind of expand what the fullness of Christ means. And what we're going to talk about today is the fullness of Christ in creation. So we're going to focus on that aspect today. You know, this, this whole section of scripture, you know, through the, where we're starting now through most of chapter two is probably one of the loftiest pieces of scripture that talk about who Christ is. You're not gonna find that this type of crafting, this type of articulation in other books of the Bible. It's very unique to this book. And the way that he does it, you can also understand that he is addressing different things that are going on in this early church. He's addressing different teachings that are coming in. So as we dive through this, we're gonna talk a lot about those things and see how Paul is defending the gospel message. You know, um, as I said, he's working through Paul to articulate some of these hard things. Um, and they're, they need to understand them for very specific reasons. Um, but, you know, when, when we look at false teaching, especially in the early church, many times what they were teaching against is the person of Christ. They're either teaching against him being deity, being God, or teaching against him being fully man, um, sometimes, as we talked about last week, maybe twisting words like redemption to give different meanings for that or salvation um, or adding things in, Jesus and type of thinking. So as, as he approaches these things, he is going to continually focus our minds back onto Christ. So we're going to kind of go through, and since we're doing such short verses today, we kind of are going to break it down by phrases and this is gonna be able to allow us to go a little bit deeper into some of these meanings. So let's look at verse 15, and we see how it starts off with how he is the image of the invisible God. Now you might look at that verse and you think, yeah, that's a strong verse, it's a good verse, I agree with that, um, I find hope in this, um, and this is based on what you already know as being true. Okay, but again, sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we want to put ourselves in the audience's shoes. We want to see why it's important that Paul is writing this. You know, even though he's writing to more of a Gentile audience, remember, you're going to have Jews that are there that are known as the Judaizers, those that believe that you first need to become a Jew and then you can come to Christ. And for those people, this phrase would be very interesting because the term image has a deep meaning rooted in the Old Testament. When you think about the conviction that's there, the command that Yahweh gives in Exodus 20, verse four, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the term image brings about the topic of idolatry. It brings about this idea that, you know, people like to worship things that they can hold, that they can see, that is tangible. Now, obviously, Jesus is not made by human hands like the idols that we see, but this term image is important, especially when you make other connections. 
you make connections to Genesis 1, how we are made in the image of God. Let us make man in our image. And then if you want to flip over to Colossians 3.10, it says, The new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Image is tough, isn't it? Especially when we, look at, when we look at it from a cultural standpoint, we struggle with our image, whether that's in our personalities, whether that's in our looks, whether that's our social status. We can struggle with image as we relate it to our identity. But again, you continue to make these connections. Paul addressed our identity in the first few verses as he's talking about those who are faithful in Christ, as he's talking about the saints. Our identity, our image is wrapped up into Christ. And you know, Paul, as he is identifying these people and he's kind of expanding this here, you can look at that command in the Old Testament and you understand that people like to worship tangible things. Um, we see all the false gods, we see all the created images, the carved images throughout the Old Testament. But what, what you might not also see is that people would do things that were less clear, perhaps worshiping the temple, worshiping the ark, worshiping other things that were godly, that were good, but not God. What about us? Do we worship a church building? Do we worship a pastor? Do we worship a crucifix or a fish bumper sticker or that seat that is my seat at church? We have things that are tangible that we hold on to, right? But there's a mysterious or a mysteriousness about God that, that people want to make real that they want to make tangible right in front of them. And Paul is tapping into that human trait. And he is transferring that trait into the image of God is Christ. So he's pushing people back to Christ. And he's using this terminology. So when we look at how he is, again, pushing everything back to Christ, he is defending the deity of Christ as he is the image of God. So, again, just trying to break down some of these verses a little bit more, seeing what could be combated against as he is defending this message. You go to the next phrase, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this term of firstborn, it can mean uh, in pri a priority in time, like the firstborn son, the eldest child or the eldest daughter, or it can mean supremacy in rank, speaking more towards sovereignty. Now skip down to verse 18. In verse 18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so when you look at some of the greater context, it helps to define some of the words that are being used. Right? So in this case, firstborn would be speaking more towards sovereignty, more towards supremacy. Now, some of these are big terms. Preeminent means superior in excellence, distinguished for something that's commendable or honorable. It is surpassing others. I don't know of any other time that I've ever used the word preeminent unless I'm talking about Christ. It's just a word that we don't use very often. Sovereign, on the other hand, is defined as supreme in power, 
possessing supreme dominion superior to all others. So we can see some similarities in the understandings of the terms of what's meant by Paul. Now, if you take verse 15 out of context and you just focus on that phrase, firstborn of all creation, you could kind of get to this understanding that Jesus was created first. Okay, this is an ancient belief of people know that followed Arianus. So the Arians, the ancient Arians believed that. Uh, modern day Jehovah's Witnesses would believe something like that, that Jesus was the firstborn of creation, meaning he was the first thing person created. Um, so that's kind of the context of where some of those other beliefs come. If you just read that phrase, if you're reading it out of context, you know, anytime that you're studying the Bible, every time you're going to the word, context is so important. You know, they, they taught us that in seminary. If Jesus is your Sunday school answer, context is your answer when you're studying scripture. Look around the passage, look around the phrase, and a lot of times it can help answer those questions. You know, when we look at the context, there's a lot there that Paul is explaining in terms of who Jesus is. So even if it might be grammatically possible to understand that Jesus is the firstborn, meaning the first thing created, the context makes it impossible. Because the whole point of the passage is to show that Christ is superior over all things. You can see in the other statements that follow that Christ is clearly indicating his priority and superiority in creation. And then logically, Firstborn cannot be part of creation if he created all things. You cannot create yourself. Um, and then lastly, we'll get into this in, as we break down verse 16 and 17, but Jesus receives worship from angels instead of um, being on the same level or something like that. But again, that moves into verse 16 and 17, which we're going to break down here. So when we look at firstborn in creation, we want to understand it's first in priority. He is above, he is superior to all things in creation, not that he was the first thing created. So let's look at verse 16 and 17. Again, Paul is writing these verses to combat false teaching. So in the Gnostic belief, in the early church as this was developing, Angels would receive varying degrees of praise based on their rank, based on their authority. And that's what's being talked about in verse 16 and 17 in terms of heavenly powers that are in view here as he is writing this. So Paul is making the claim that Christ is superior to all angelic beings, whether good or bad. Uh, if you have a bookmark, go ahead and keep that in Colossians 1 and flip over to Hebrews chapter 1 with, with me. So the book of Hebrews is probably written about 7 to 10 years after the book of Colossians. But what we see in Hebrews chapter 1 is approaching or addressing the same type of false teaching, the same thing that is going on in the church in terms of understanding the position of Christ as compared to angels or heavenly beings. So let's just read uh, the first 14 verse, or I guess all of chapter 1 here. And this is kind of just parallel to what's being said there in those two verses in Colossians 1. 
Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him he also created the world. So again, another affirmation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and the, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of the uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? They're not all ministering spirits, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So again, the author of Hebrews really makes that delineation between Christ and angels. Again, these teachings that would try to compare Jesus to angels that are infiltrating the church. Um, so as, as we look at verse 16, going back to Colossians, through verse 16 and 17, uh, what we really want to pay attention to are the prepositions. Now, I know it's almost school season, but grammar is very, very important. And as we look at prepositions, they can change different meanings, which makes it very hard to translate at times. Um, but at the same time, we want to we draw out some of this meaning as we're looking at the prepositions, understanding who Jesus is and where he was at the beginning. You know, you think of Jesus at the beginning and you think of John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That kind of goes through our mind. <clears throat> Reading through these verses, there are five things that we want to understand when it comes to Jesus and creation. He is the originator, the agent, the goal, the antecedent, and the sustainer of creation. We'll go through those five things. So first off, Christ is the originator of creation. This is um, the by him, for by him all things were created. <clears throat> there in verse 16. All things, in every place, every sort, every rank, everything originates with him. This would include angels because he puts the, the part about heaven and earth in these verses as well. Paul lists the various ranks of angelic beings, as he says, invisible rulers and authorities. 
He is the originator. He is not created. Now, obviously, in the same way that we don't say that he did not create the Father, in the same way the Father does not create the Son. This is where the understanding of the Trinity comes in. And honestly, it's a hard concept for people to grasp. Who can perfectly identify, defend, articulate the Trinity? Something that took hundreds of years to develop with people a lot smarter than me. I think that for most of us, we have a general understanding of what the Trinity is, but to describe it to somebody who is maybe Jewish could be difficult. You know, the Trinity is a hard concept for somebody that is Jewish because they have the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, our Lord our God is one. There is one God. Whereas in the Trinity, we understand that there is one God with three persons. So understanding what the Trinity means um, can be difficult. Because the other reason is the term Trinity is not found in the Bible. But there are multiple passages such as this that defend the concept and the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, I think of something like John twenty twenty eight, where Thomas is in, in the room and Jesus comes to him and the way that he calls out to, to Jesus is my Lord and my God. You think of creation when it says man is made in our image you think of the book of hebrews it really really uh, amplifies the deity of jesus and understanding who he is in the godhead you know and and as we go through this it is about understanding the place of jesus understanding who he is and i as a pastor can come up and, and share my thoughts on it but as we're going through teaching, as we're going through discipling, as I'm trying to help us press into the Father, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to study the scriptures. I want you to find those answers in the Bible. And if you have questions, come to me, come to the elders, find a, a mentor to say, okay, I'm not getting this part of the Trinity. I'm not getting this part of, the, of a Christian teaching. And we study the scriptures. And we spend time pouring in our hearts to that, seeking the truth of who Jesus is. Because again, you're not going to find the term Trinity in the Bible, but you're going to see that all over in the, in the Word. So Paul is encouraging the people to know who Jesus is because God mediated the whole beginning of life, the entire universe, through his Son. Secondly, he is the architect of creation. Now, when I look at verse 16, I can see an interruption, so to speak, in between these prepositions um, as he is explaining the by him. So him being the architect, I find in the part that says in heaven all the way down to the authorities to kind of define what it means, the scope of what he is building, the scope and the plans of the entire universe are designed by him as he has created all things. He is the architect of the universe. You then have two more prepositions in this verse. You have through and for at the end. So Christ is the agent of creation, that is through him all things are made. He accomplishes creation. You know, I, I quoted John 1, 1, uh, 1, 2 there. What does John 1, 3 say? Test. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made. 
He is the one that does it. Now, it's interesting, again, when you study this kind of stuff and you're studying language, you then go back to Genesis 1. Who, who does it say made everything? It just says God. Right? So we can make these connections based on what we see here in Colossians, based on what we see in Hebrews, based on what we see in John 1, 1 through 3, and then take it back to Genesis where it says that God speaks everything into existence. And we make those connections of who Jesus is as part of the Godhead. So, as we're connecting what is being said, everything that is spoken into existence by God, we make this connection between Jesus and God. And again, it's for understanding of the Trinity. Now, looking at this next point, I want us to think of where, you know, Jesus is the goal of creation. I want us to think of like a building project. You can take our own building project in terms of maybe a new sanctuary one day, Sunday school rooms, things like that. Most project needs, they need plans, right? You need blueprints. Well, if I drew everything up, if I, if I planned everything, they were designed by me, and then if I were to build the actual buildings, it would be all be done by me through my own power, through my own skills. I would be the originator, I would be the architect, I would be the agent. You know, you can, you can fill in any project that you've done to understand how we're going through this process, how this is all being described through these prepositions. Um, but you know, when we look about a building project, there's usually a goal, there's a reason, there's a purpose behind why we're building it, right? So there's a goal. And, and in, this, in this same way, the next preposition shows that Christ is the goal of creation, as it says that it is for him. You know, history is moving towards this goal where the whole created universe will glorify Christ. You see this in Revelation, you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, in Philippians 2, verse 10, 11, this is what it says. God's word says, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, he is the goal of creation. And, and so far in, in the prepositions, what we see when we put all of these thoughts together, when we understand it maybe in that simplistic building analogy, all things have been created in him. The internal plans for creation abide in him. Um, they are by him where he has acted as the builder and he, they are for him where creation belongs to him and it reflects his glory. The way that Paul is writing this is to reflect wisdom, philosophies of the day. He is speaking to the, the people in the language, in the culture that they would understand. Because in Greek philosophies and Greek cultures for centuries, they taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. And Paul is saying that the primary cause is the plan, right? The, the instrumental cause would be the power, and the final cause would be the purpose. So in creation, Christ is the primary cause. He plans it. The instrumental cause, he produces it. The final cause, it's because it's for his own pleasure. Again, hopefully we can begin to see the richness of this book, the richness and the style and articulation in how he is doing this. You know, he is speaking to people who are of the Greek culture. And he is speaking in ways that they have been taught, in ways that they would understand, and he is taking everything back to Christ. 
You know, it would be similar to if I were to get up here and speak in today's slang. I think that would be kind of fun, don't you? I think all of our teenagers might think it's a little cringe or sus or, or something like that. I love the, the looks that they're giving me right now. I love to embarrass my children. But if I were to use that language, everybody else would be like, what, is that, what does this even mean? You know, that's the importance of taking the gospel message and speaking it in a way that the culture, that those people can understand it. That's why we, we help fund translators to translate the Bible so it's in that person's language. Understanding what Dudu and Nimini do. Understanding what Matt Keller does with deaf missions. The importance of taking the gospel message and presenting it in a way that the people can understand. You know, moving on to, to verse 17. We see the fourth role that Jesus plays in creation, where he is the antecedent, another grammar English term uh, for us. But basically it means that he is before all. He is preceding, uh, he is the preceding cause. You know, and what's interesting about this verse in verse 17 is the he, that pronoun. It is an intensive pronoun. So it has the force of he and he alone. In the Greek, it's you have the pronoun and then you have the, the third person singular form of is. So it's literally he, he is, if you were to literally translate what that says in the Greek. So it just, it adds emphasis in that language where it, again, is solely on Christ. So it separates Christ from every other created entity and it puts him above all things and beings it puts him before all created things and beings you know christ again he is not a created being nor did he create himself many times when we think of creation we can think in a linear way where we can trace things back to that point of singularity uh, most sciences kind of kind of believe in that as well that there's this singularity point but m you know, in today's teaching, it's more that there was matter that was already present there, and then through some sort of combustion, everything kind of came about. But, you know, you, you just look at the name of God, Yahweh, I am. It just exudes this ever-present mentality to where he just is. He always has been, and he always will be. So he is someone that is outside of space, time, and matter. I find, as I struggle through some of these harder topics. Uh, some of these things that are a little bit deeper, there might be a little bit more mystery behind. I find some of the teachings from old are very helpful. I'm not sure if you have spent much time in things like the creeds, but the Nicene Creed, um, made at the Council of Nicaea in 325, has a very good statement about who Christ is. Um, in that section, it says that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And it continues a little bit more about Jesus, and then it, it talks about God the Father beforehand, and then of course the Holy Spirit to close. But as I said, the Trinity is a word that's not found in the Bible, but there's a lot of teaching around the Trinity that we can look at, that we can read, that we can dive into to help grow our understanding. 
It's a difficult concept. Again, especially for unbelievers to maybe grasp, to understand, but it's one that needs to be understood by us as believers so that as Paul does, we too can defend the gospel message. We too can defend against false teaching that might try to negate some of the things of Christ and who he is. It's very important for us to be able to properly understand who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. And finally, we see that Jesus is the sustainer in creation. This is in verse 17 as it says, in him all things hold together. He preserves, he maintains the existence of what he has created. He is, he's not disassociated with creation, he is personal, he is involved, he came down from heaven to be in creation. You know, um, and then the Father has set him on his throne to reign over that creation. He is that cohesive force that holds things together. He is, the, he is what believers are united by. And you know, you can look at that word unity and think, what unity? What unity do we see in this world? You know, for a culture that is so divided in so many ways, Christians are united under the banner of Christ. He is the uniting factor. He is the sustainer of creation. You know, in our society, um, we could look at maybe a family unit, for instance, as a small example. You think about family units, even though they've changed over the years through cultural norms and, and stuff like that, but you, you might be able to think of a family member that could be represented as the glue for that family, somebody that holds that family together. Maybe they're responsible for organizing reunions or holidays and getting things together, bringing the family together in times of peace, in times of turmoil, and, and they help continue to maintain that peace. You know, if somebody is trying to threaten that peace, they would boldly stand up to protect what the family has and keeping them together. Jesus, in that same way, he's like that glue that can hold us together because it is under his name, it is by his blood that we are united. He is our sustainer and he provides what the family needs in order for them to carry on. You know, you think about... <clears throat> Churches around us that might be dying, churches that might be closing doors. You might hear things in the media, oh, the church is dead, it's old hat, it's old fashioned. We have to understand that the church will never be dead because Jesus is alive. You know, he is our sustainer. He is the one that provides life. Not this building, not me, not, not you guys. It's about him. And that's the importance that we need to hold on to. So I hope as we kind of break down some of these verses that we can understand some of these harder things. That we can appreciate a little bit more what it takes to articulate heavy things. When we look at the fullness of Christ and what that means. When we look at the fullness of Christ, what it means in terms of creation, as we talked about today. Where Paul is combating against these false teachings that would lift angelic beings over Christ, that would lift angelic beings in, in ways that would be unhealthy and unnatural and untrue. You know, we understand the beliefs uh, of Jesus and who he was. You know, sometimes we'll run into people that would think, well, he's just like the angels. Maybe he's, he's a high angel or something like that. You know, and, and in times of 
funerals. Maybe you heard, you've heard the platitude in the past, oh, God just needed another angel, or now they're an angel. 1 Corinthians 6 teaches us that we will judge angels. So when we die, we don't become angels. We're going to be above angels. So it's, again, false teaching, platitude, whatever you want to say, it's infiltrated the hearts and minds of people to make them feel better, give them comfort in times of sorrow and grief. But it's still an untruth that needs to be called out. Angels are ministering spirits that God has set. I'm thankful that he has. Um, and Christ is above them. You know, these, these teachings that Paul is combating against were very important because Paul had to defend who Jesus was as God. He had to defend who Jesus was as a, as a man so that he could understand the sacrifice that was given in order to pay that price for the sin of the world. Jesus is what sets us apart from all other religions and all, all other faiths. It's very inclusive in that it's open to all, but it's very exclusive in that it is by Christ and Christ alone. We have to understand that. We have to live in that type of way. And it can be difficult for other faiths, for other re religions, for people that just want to coexist with everyone else and, and try to pick and choose what they like from different areas, from different faiths, from different religions. But Paul is teaching us that we need to respond with proper teaching and proper doctrine, no matter what our culture might be saying around us. And I pray that as we continue to go through this section, we can, under, we can expand our own understanding of what that means, we, that we can expand our own articulation of how we're defending the gospel and, and the faith and the belief that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I want to thank you uh, just for your truth. I want to thank you for Paul's words as hard as they might be at times to understand. But Lord, I just, I thank you for the creation and this world that we get to experience, this new day. Um, Lord, your mercies are new every morning. And so today, as it is called today, Lord, I just pray that we can rejoice. I pray that we can look to you as the image of the invisible God who is above all, who is before all. Lord, I pray that you would continue to um, mold our hearts. Lord, through your sanctifying spirit that we can trust in you more as we're being made into the image of your son. Lord, that he would be what we worship. Not other religious things, not other holy things, not other good things. Because he and he alone is worthy of praise. So Father, today I just pray that you would meet us where we're at in our hearts and minds. Continue to draw us closer to you and help us to, to deepen that relationship. Help us to press in, especially in the difficult things, to find your truth, your wisdom. Lord, continue to, to write it on our hearts, to 
be disciplers of one another. Uh, as iron sharpens iron, Lord, allow us to come alongside of each other and, and lift each other up and equip each other in your word. And Lord, that you would just make those relationships evidently clear as we're being drawn closer to you each and every day. Lord, I thank you for this body. I thank you for this family. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand for our last song?